And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Friday, October 13th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, the Army's new CIO is all about institutionalizing technology chops. Plus, how the Army is bolstering its organic industrial base to keep tanks running. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the Army has been talking for many, many years about the need to simplify its IT networks. But officials say they're now poised to make more progress than ever. That's largely because of some recent organizational changes in how the Army funds and buys information technology. It also doesn't hurt that network simplification is a major priority for the Army's new chief of staff. We get details from Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. Previous Army leaders have said the network is the service's top modernization priority, but in his first major speech this week to the Association of the U.S. Army's annual conference in Washington, General Randy George renewed that position and made clear exactly what he thinks the biggest problems are. Command and control is foundational to how we fight. Frankly, a lot of the systems that we have today just don't support effective C2. Antenna farms and endless server stacks are conspicuous and generate too much electromagnetic signature. On today's battlefield, a commander should be able to see to a fight with simple tech, a tablet, for instance, equipment that is agile, mobile, and updatable. If we slog around the battlefield with massive operation centers, which are difficult to set up and often contractor-supported, we will get pounded. The Russians are learning this lesson several times a day, and we will not learn the hard way. Even though the Army has faced similar network complexity problems for decades, the Army officials in charge of building and operating the network say a lot has changed very recently to help solve the problem. They argue the biggest ones are institutional. For example, within the last few months, the Army consolidated effectively all of its acquisition authority for network modernization within one program executive office. Before that, it was bifurcated between two PEOs. Lieutenant General John Morrison is the Army's Deputy Chief of Staff for Command, Control, Communications, Cyber Operations, and Networks. Don't underestimate institutional change, because I would submit to you that's one of the key things that is very, very different here. We used to have, the number varied, but anywhere from four, the high 40s to the low 60s, different organizational networks that were out there. It made us wildly inefficient. It made us wildly operationally ineffective because we induced complexity everywhere. And so this, this mm-hmm. institutional shift that we're not going to do that anymore, and those numbers have already been reduced down to around 12 to 13, and will be done by 25. Mm -hmm. In the alignment of network delivery capabilities under a single PO as opposed to being bifurcated across several where the pieces and parts came together at the unit level as opposed to being integrated at the PO level to be delivered, integrated to a formation. Mm -hmm. And then that governance piece up at HQDA that allows the visibility of what all, uh, everybody is trying to do, what the requirements are, and then synchronizing, integrating, and prioritizing them 
is absolutely key. Mark Kitts is the Army's Program Executive Officer for Command, Control, and Communications Tactical. That's the acquisition office that now has that sole responsibility for building and buying the Army's network infrastructure. Until this year, that responsibility was shared with the PEO for Enterprise Information Systems. Kitts says there are already several specific examples of actions his office has taken to try to answer Georgia's demand for a simpler network. For instance, on those complicated command posts. The Army had been planning to buy a significant number that were based around the service's medium tactical vehicles. It since rescinded that RFP after deciding it needs to rethink the problem. Another example is Unified Network Operations. Unified Network Operations is a program that we're exploring in, in 24 that has to integrate across enterprise and tactical to one unified network. Uh, and so in that capability, we're going after a competitive prototyping strategy to leverage the existing technologies that we have in our formations and in commercial spaces. Uh, another example is in our Next Generation Tactical Terminal program where we're consolidating our SATCOM capabilities and we're doing that in a way that challenges industry to deliver a capability that can be flexible to the future so we're not stuck with one band or one technology for 20 years as we do the initial buy. And so already in our programs, we're baking in this ability to be flexible and agile. Kit says maybe the biggest advance toward getting the Army to a posture that operates as one unified network is the approach his office is starting to think through on identity and access management, something that would have been a lot harder under the previous construct when different acquisition officials were in charge of building different elements of the network. Now, is that one technology? Is that one provider? No. But it is a capability that that allows for us for our identity to move for our attributes to be flexible and really to have an architecture that allows us to evolve over time not just one solution for tactical or enterprise or operations or you name it and so i'm certainly still assessing but i we are going to smartly go down a road that gets us to one solution or set of solutions for the army For many years, officials have been trying to reduce the differences in the experiences soldiers have when they're training at a base and what they'll actually have to use when they're on the battlefield. Lieutenant General Maria Barrett, the commander of Army Cyber Command, says the service has landed on a new approach to doing that, too. The basic idea is to make sure a system works in the tactical environment first and then work backwards. Among other advantages, she says building the overall network that way will make it more practical to defend. One of the things that we realized as we went on this journey of unified network was there was an issue with the level of complexity that signal soldiers were dealing with at the lower echelons. The BCTs going out to the National Training Center and what they were faced with. The ability to lay in these capabilities in And let's look at the capabilities. They can work at the tactical edge and then come back into what we euphemistically call the the enterprise. So it does enable the defense. We're doing this today in Europe, where the regional cyber center there is looking at the endpoint security data coming off the tactical units that are in Europe and, and are operationally arrayed. I think when we start talking, too, about some of the capabilities that zero trust, and cloud, which the tactical world wants to take advantage of as well, we are actually going to be at the middle of how do you operationalize that? We really have to think through some of our processes in terms of roles and responsibilities, and we're committed to doing that. The alternative of not doing that is completely unacceptable. It's 18th Airborne Corps going out the door and having to re-image computers when they get to their, where they're going to. 
we've done that for 20 years. We're not doing that anymore. Army officials say they're close enough to the idea of a unified network that two years from now, the service will no longer talk in terms of a tactical network and an enterprise network. Most of the differences will be abstracted, and for users, there won't be a noticeable difference between the two. Morrison says there's already some early evidence that kind of idea can work. For instance, in the past year, the Army has rolled out a new security information and event management tool set that lets higher headquarters handle more of the cyber defense burden, so tactical units don't have to. We haven't really thought of it as a, as a global enterprise that then had to be horizontally integrated across theaters and then vertically from strategic, operational, and tactical. In just this last year alone, we now have a security incident and event monitoring capability that goes from the strategic to the operational to the tactical levels. The visibility that our cyber is getting from that, because they can now see what is happening from a cyber perspective at the edge, tip and cue our operational formations on what is happening to take an action against it, it's unprecedented. That's also allowing us to start this notion, and you heard the chief talk about it yesterday, we've got to move complexity up. We've got to get it to where intuitive systems are in the hands of our soldiers who just need to concentrate on fighting. Well, now we have that ability to where literally higher up in that formation, they can do that defensive overwatch, and they're all doing it off of a unified capability with the same look and feel. Think of that from not only the operational perspective, but from a training perspective. And now you've got that layering of capabilities across the totality of the network we just simply haven't had before. Jared Serbu, Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Check out Jared's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, how the Army's bolstering its organic industrial base to keep the tanks running. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Tanks, armored vehicles, trucks, the Army buys them all from contractors. But over their sometimes long life cycles, the Army relies on its own production and maintenance facilities. Those make up what the military calls the organic industrial base. At this week's Association of the U.S. Army Conference, I got an update on modernizing the industrial base from the commander of the Army's Tank Automotive and Armaments Command, Brigadier General Michael Laylor. The great take home in the great city of Detroit. How are things out in Detroit? Sir, exciting time to be in Detroit. Really a hub of innovation out there, quartered at Detroit Arsenal. We have us, obviously, working the sustainment, but you also have the great program executive officers for ground combat systems and then combat service support up there working and acquiring you know new hardware for the Army. But then you also got the cross-functional team up there from the ground combat system. So it really is a great place to serve. I've been up there two months and... Uh, We really have the team of teams up there, almost a a model for the Army in terms of how we uh, integrate all our functions and modernize. And just give us the outlines of TACOM's purview, where it begins, where it ends, with respect to fielding a ground system. Absolutely, sir. I mean, TACOM, we affect, you know, ground combat systems from the uh, strategic support area for the strategic base all the way to the tactical edge to the unit employment. Detroit, Michigan is where the headquarters is. We have six depots and arsenals around the country. Uh, in the continental United States, so Sierra Army Depot, California, Red River Army Depot, Texarkana, Texas, Anniston Army Depot in Alabama, uh, Rock Island Arsenal, the Joint Manufacturing and Technology Center there. In Lima, Ohio, we have the uh, Joint Systems Manufacturing Center, which is the tank production uh, right there, and then also uh, Waterville Elite Arsenal in Albany, 
doing a Canon 2 production. Really a unique capability there. And then, of course, you know, we can maintain, reset, manufacture equipment in those arsenals and depots around the world and then move it to the point of employment by the tactical units. And then at each of our locations where units are in the field, you have a TACOM logistics assistance representative right there, primarily focused on maintenance, but he or she can also work some supply integration. And, of course, we're partnered with our partners working for our military sales. And, of course, a lot of our work right now is sure. production of uh, equipment going into the Eastern European fight or maintaining our own army's readiness. Absolutely. Well, for two months on the job, you have good command of all the parts and pieces, including thank you, all the it, initial thank you, names. Sir. Yeah, it is, it, is, it is big, but, uh, yeah, no, absolutely. I really enjoy it. Now, last year when we were at this booth, there was a tank right across from us, a striker tank. And that was not built originally by the Army. That was made by a contractor factory. That's right. And so in the life cycle of that piece of equipment, when does it become the TACOM's purview to, say, make spare parts for or to repair or otherwise refurbish? Yeah, I mean, we go through an extensive process when we get a piece of equipment, ground combat systems or otherwise, that is uh, made by an original equipment manufacturer. We go through the entire process and look at it from a sustainment perspective go through a series of everything from the supply chain on it to how it's maintained, where it will be maintained, either at the tactical level or even us at the sustainment level. And then eventually we decide to fully, uh, if that's a program of record that we're going to fully material release and then and manage from the Army's perspective, eventually it, over time it'll transition from the contractor through the life cycle management command model and then we'll take it on. And then, and then from there, you know, all the things that happen in that supply chain, hey, you have a part. It's provisioned by this vendor. It's managed. We give it a stock number. Units can then order it. Or, you know, in terms of all the technical manuals and data that comes with it, you know, we have that published and are now training that into force. Truly, that's really what we're all about at the end of the day is integrating all those supply and maintenance functions of a system and then enabling a unit to function with it and fight and win with it on the battlefield. And at some point, you have that in organic industrial capability within TACOM. If you have to fabricate something, you can do that. 100%, sir. I mean, inside our organic industrial base, uh, specific to those sites I talk with TACOM, you know, if we need something manufactured, we do have capabilities of manufacture. If we need to uh, contract, we have the partners in Army Contracted Command with an AMC. We can bring in what we need from a supply chain or specific vendor and then integrate that to help the unit and get it to the part they need. But that is really a unique part of what we do. We can uh, manufacture. We can additive manufacture these days. We have a really array of capabilities within that industrial base to allow the Army to maintain itself, to surge sometimes, and also uh, look at it as like our insurance policy. If, you know, when we need to uh, sure. you know, surge into a wartime situation, that'll buy time and space for our industrial base to uh, I guess help. some of these things are like Model Ts. You could actually make one from scratch if you had to. Yeah, we could if we had the technical specifications and that data. You know, we have the talented people inside that base who could take those materials, then turn those materials into the system. And then integrate all that, you know, whatever the Pacific sure. uh, supporting elements of it and put it in play. Absolutely. Now, the organic industrial base has come under scrutiny lately because it seems to be strained, as is the commercial industrial base for a lot of things that the Army needs, consumes, that has to have on hand in large volume. You know, in the case of conflict, should that happen? So what is going on from your standpoint at TACOM to reinvigorate the organic industrial base of DOD? We've been doing that for several years now, and then what we've seen here with Eastern Europe has really allowed us to put a lot of that in operation and also to see where we need to go in the future. So uh, I would start going back to some good analysis that was done by the Army in 2019 and looking at the organic industrial base, eventually uh, an approved 
organic industrial-based modernization plan funded through our partners in Congress, $18 billion across 15-year plan here in uh, AMC. TACOM, we have six of those 23 depots and arsenals. We probably have about 30%, almost $5.5 billion of the $18 billion that is surging into our facilities, our capital investment, really into the talent, you know, and upskilling our people. And uh, really the, the work that we've had come under in terms of the demands from uh, either supporting the war in Ukraine or supporting the Army really has allowed us to exercise some good systems and put it in play. And we've seen some dramatic uptick in terms of work, which helps our skills and ability, you know, uh, would say it's like repetitions, able to uh, exercise our systems at Watervliet, at Red River, Anniston, really across the whole team. So and it also shows, too, where we got to go in the future for making sure we got some either public-private partnerships established or some good industry connections so that we can surge in the future. I've embraced it. I think TACOM's embraced it. We really have uh, risen to the challenge. Amazing what we've been able to do in terms of supporting all our allies simultaneously sure. and, then, and, then, and then also executing what we need for our Army. Now, a lot of this work requires specific skills, welding, the ability to program and operate numerically controlled machines or computer-controlled machines, metallurgy, really, and so on. Do you find a challenge in getting the personnel you need? In the Army and then also commercial sector, there is the you know drive for talent right now. I, I feel like we're in a good place, but uh, we're, we're open for business. We're looking for new upskilled talent to bring in and develop some new uh, skilled workers, like you said, and, you know, New and emerging skill sets, whether in you know metalworks or we're talking uh, manufacturing or we're talking added manufacturing. So, but I think what's great in TACOM is we have a uh, talent development program, which is really the model for uh, AMC and the Army in terms of upskilling and, and modernizing our workforce. But also it extends to how we educate our workforce, and that even includes apprenticeship programs at local technical schools, universities in and around our depots and arsenals. And it's really having some good effects in terms of bringing some uh, renewed energy, some new talent, and also merging that with upskilling our existing mm-hmm. workforce. You're kind of getting this uh, convergence of the uh, older and the newer going on. It's actually driven our uh, workforce average age down in a few places, uh, like uh, Waterville Arsenal, a good example, probably has driven their wow. average work age down nine years in just about four years, and that's pretty important. Yeah, because I've been to Waterfleet many years ago, and it was not exactly youngsters operating some yeah. of the machines up there. Now you walk around there, you know, I'd like to think of myself as still young, but our average age workforce up there is about 38, so it has come down a lot, and uh, you get a lot of young uh, professionals in there working on the lines, especially they're attracted to by some of the technology we got, and so when you're thinking about something like Waterfleet, uh, when we make a breech block for a cannon, we used to do it. It used to take us like 30 different processes and steps. Now we got this upskilled machinery as modern as anything anybody else has in the world, ministry wise. And now they're working two steps and they're doing it at a much higher capacity and rate. And the job satisfaction attracts it. It's a good time. It's a good All time right. to be serving. And fair to say, you probably are not recruiting on the picket lines of, of the UAW at this point in Detroit. No, no. And, the, uh, you know, we, we wish all that well, but we, we have no problems in uh, bringing in talent. And uh, we support all our partners in the area. But uh, the Arsenal, we got, our, we got our own workflow going, our own talent. And uh, the Arsenal is uh, open for business around the country. So. All right. Final question on the raw materials. What does that look like in terms of availability? Because some of these metals are highly specialized. They're not just sheet steel you can buy anywhere and so on. And uh, there's also the inflationary effect because of the energy that goes into manufacturing the raw materials. 
Yeah, I think we had in the last several years, we've had some supply chain challenges with some of those materials that were in high demand. I think we've come through a lot of that challenge right now. We've got really good partnerships with uh, getting the raw materials we need. Uh, when I think about places like Red River and Anniston and, again, back to Waterville and even Rock Island, they're able to get their materials. And in some of those locations, we're able to, I would say, almost execute process and manufacture ahead now where we're starting to get a little depth and some surge capacity in on the material. So we're doing pretty good from a materials perspective. I think one of our challenges, Takecom-wide, is still some of the demands on vendors for supply chain and specific parts for systems that might be aging or obsolete. We've had to be creative in different ways in terms of getting and working through getting obsolete parts, whether through making them ourselves or working through second, third-party suppliers. But we're in a good position from a raw materials perspective right now. And you must get a lot of feedback from these platforms in the field so that you know, well, golly, when it gets to be 19 years old, that's the U-joint that's going to go. And you can build those in anticipation of the fleet of whatever the platform is of needing that U-joint. And you won't wait till the failure yeah, absolutely. I think we have good data on a lot of those systems, especially those that have been in use for a while. And we can take that data and then our skilled supply chain managers, you know, item managers can look ahead and get deeper and try and get us some depth uh, in some of those areas. Not saying that's always an easy task, but they do have the data to literally inform their actions then from what we're buying and, and buy with some precision. And again, that's another good example of uh, improved precision sustainment from the perspective of Tacom. All right. You drive an automatic or a stick shift? I have driven a stick shift, so I don't know how many Americans still can, but uh, these days in automatics. This American still can and does. <laughs> there so. you go. I'm, I'm, I'm still as versatile as well. All right. Excellent. Thanks. Brigadier General Michael Laylor commands the Army's Tank Automotive and Armaments Command. I spoke with him at the Association of the U.S. Army Conference earlier this week. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Arm yourself with the Federal Drive. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, the government could still close, but your health insurance will march on. But first, the Army's new CIO is all about institutionalizing technology chops. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. In his first three months on the job, Leo Garciga, the Army's new chief information officer, has focused on three priorities. He says the move to the cloud computing platforms, the continued evolution of agile and secure software development, and data management will drive a lot of what he does his first year on the job. Garciga tells Federal News Network's Jason Miller about how he's institutionalizing and simplifying some of these efforts. Since I sat in the seat, we've already pushed out two uh, guidance memos, one around JWCC to start moving the entire Army in that way, and then one relaxing some of the constraints that we've had for contracting for cloud support in order to really maximize uh, industry's ability to come partner with us to get there. So I think we're in a great spot. I think we're, we're in the what I would call maturing stage of, of cloud right now. Leo, you know you got me excited when you said we pushed out two guidance memos. My little reporter antennas are, are, are going back and forth. So maybe talk a little bit about that first one on JWCC. Uh, we know the DOD CIO put one out saying, hey, we're really going to strongly encourage, if not mandate, the use of it. Did you all do the same, or how did you build off that DOD CIO memo? We did. We did. We we pushed a memo out that said we are going to strongly encourage that we go to JWCC. I think right now our, our approach has been um, we need some time to get off kind of camo uh, and where we are in the story there. I think uh, that, that's been a, a great effort and has allowed us to get a lot of capability in the cloud. I think we, we got to get the team 
in a good spot to operationalize JWCC. So we really, my guidance to the Army was really, hey, let's focus on JWCC and IL-6. Let's get some reps in. Let's mature the process. Um, and then as we do that, we'll start shifting off and making sure that we're all in, all over, on every network fabric for JWCC. I think that made a lot of sense just because of where we are in the story right now uh, and being sensitive to, we don't want to disturb programs that are in the middle, especially if with, with a hard change in, in how we're contracting for cloud. But the philosophy is JWCC first. So that's really where we're pushing. And then the other one really was an internal army kind of approach to contracting for cloud. We we're probably a little too restrictive uh, in our approach, which really meant that we were not getting best value. So we really pushed hard to open up the aperture to allow uh, commands and PEOs to really go out there and get the right vendor that could support them, whether they were building new things in the cloud or, or just getting uh, support to manage inside of VPC. We wanted to make sure that they had the flexibility they needed and, and relax that uh, restriction. Just going back to the JWCC memo real quick, the idea is strongly encouraged first, but eventually you, do you expect camo to sunset? Do you expect people to move off of, okay, I awarded this task order to camo. I'm going to move that task order when the time is right over to JWCC because I, I'm sure, and this is what I've heard from other agencies, there's a lot of overlap, right? You have Azure on JWCC, you have Azure on camo. There's, it's, it's really just a contracting action versus an actual uh-oh, I need to pick up lift and shift, for lack of a better word. Yeah, yeah. No, no, that's fair. No, I, I think your articulation of that's correct, right? It's really a contract in action. No, our our intent is to maximize our use of uh, of JWCC uh, across the board. So as as we move forward, right, we'll we'll get more and more task orders on there. And look, I think this is really about you know best value. I think as the as the department and all the services pull their resources together and really start leveraging at scale of JWCC, I think we're going to see those real huge long-term cost savings similar to what uh, the intelligence community saw with uh, C2E. So I think we're going to be moving in that direction. And then just going back, and I know there's plenty to talk about, but you know, any, any new memos, you know, get us excited here. But just going back to the buying of cloud, you said it was a little too restrictive. We really want to make sure we get the right vendors with the right support. Is there anything more you're able to kind of offer? I would say it was a little bit more about we as an army had made an early on decision to minimize a sprawl of cloud support contracts, <laughs> not actually buying cloud, but support contracts through a couple of uh, enterprise agreements that were out there. But we were finding is we we're probably not getting best value. So we really just opened up the aperture uh, so folks could have a, an opportunity to get uh, best value as far as their support contracts for cloud. Okay. I appreciate that. A little bit it's different. A, yeah. It's helpful to understand it because I think folks will hear guidance and hear memos and they just want to uh, make sure they understand it. Jumping similar to cloud, but but different DevSecOps, you mentioned the focus today and in institutionalizing some of those capabilities. I, I know you mentioned in one of your speeches back in, in uh, TechNet that there's some policies coming out around software. Maybe bring those two pieces together, DevSecOps, software buying or software oversight. What are you thinking in that area? I think super excited in that space right now. Uh, we just signed out yesterday software container policy. So some initial guidance out to the force for how to best leverage, secure, and deploy uh, software containers uh, inside the Army. Badly needed. Um, I think a, a, a lot of folks doing great things, trying to put their applications and their capabilities into containers uh, and doing it with, with little guidance. So I think we, we really focused uh, as a team up here on how do we get the best guidance out to the Army at large that allows us to 
being a in a more secure space, but gives us the flexibility we need across all of our uh, software development activities that are out there. And again, right, one one of those things where a lot of great folks across the army kind of came together from uh, from our cyber, from Netcom here up at CIO, from the G6, and from the acquisition community to really sit down and, and think through the some of the challenges that we were having, both with software being developed by commands and software being developed at uh, uh, within the uh, acquisition community to get kind of the best guidance we could get out that really starts shaping how the Army leverages uh, software containers uh, across the board. So I'm really excited that that we got that out. Great meeting with DOD CIO on it today and definitely really thinking through like what's next, right? Um, I think the other pieces that we're, we're starting to think about, we have uh, some initial guidance that's going to come out here in the next couple of weeks. And I know you heard it, I think, Jason, like four and a half years ago, we talked about it. We're going to talk about it again, uh, is putting out some guidance uh, for, for reciprocity. I think really looking across the, the department on where we are. And when I think of, you know, what's happening on the CJC2 side and, and folks across the department building and leveraging capabilities across the board, this idea that that we have to go re-accredit things and re-look at it from a security uh, perspective is really slowing us down and kind of uh, hampering us. So we're, we're looking at putting some, some initial guidance out here in the next couple of weeks. It's being triaged across the Army, some of the same players, to look at adding some flexibility uh, for both authorizing officials and, and for the Army to more quickly leverage capability that's already been looked at by, by another uh, combat support agency or MILDEP and also uh, to make sure that we have the ability to quickly bring that onto our networks uh, in a smart way. So we've got quite a bit of work that's going into that right there, which will tie back into the container policy and making sure that we have that reciprocity across the services uh, for containers that are being built elsewhere. The that's just a tease, Jason. The I, tease. I know, and I'm excited. Now I want to ask lots of questions about that, but I know you're, you're, the answer would be you have to wait until the memo's done before I can talk much more about it. Right. <laughs> The goal, the goal, I imagine, with the reciprocity, just generally speaking, is to reduce the amount of time it takes to get to if, if to get cloud services or software or software as a service onto the Army's networks. That that's the long term goal, or, or the that's the overarching goal. One hundred percent. That's that's the direction we're trying to to move in right now. Um, I think uh, folks who've known me a long time have always said if. A bunch of great Americans at an organization checked us and did it the right way. We should be good to go. We probably shouldn't be checking their homework. Let's move out. So I think uh, I think I'm excited on, on on where we're going, and it makes a lot of sense. And hopefully, it drives some some significant change across the department that allows allows us to share capability uh, more seamlessly. Leo Garcia is the Army's new Chief Information Officer, speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Find more episodes of Ask the CIO at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, the government could still close, but your health insurance will march on. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Both open and closed seasons are coming up. 
November 17th will mark the end of the continuing resolution, so the government could close when the money runs out. Just a few days earlier, open season arrives. That's when federal employees choose a health insurance carrier for 2024. We get the rundown from National Active and Retired Federal Employee Associations, John Hatton. And John, yeah, so a couple of things happening right there in that early part of November. A lot going on. Yeah. And so this 45-day CR, the time is ticking. You know, as we speak, there's still no House speaker. And if there is one, then what the heck? So yeah. uh, what's your best take? What are you watching for? Well, obviously, everything's going to be dependent on what happens in the House speaker's race and what the new speaker decides to do in terms of their strategy. In the meantime, the Senate hopefully will be moving along with their appropriations process right before the end of the fiscal year. The House did pass a couple more appropriations bills. And because the House has to act first on appropriations, according to the House, constitutionally, according to the Senate, by tradition, the Senate was waiting for some of those bills to move. A minibus that they were going to use the Milcon VA House pass bill for and adding two more was held up by Ron Johnson. It's looking like Republicans are going to be playing ball on moving forward with these appropriations bills instead of trying to delay them. And the Senate now has these vehicles to start trying to move some of them. And so I think we're first going to see a minibus in the Senate using that Milcon VA, Ag, and then transportation, the T-HUD bill. So hopefully they'll start making progress while the House figures out what it's doing with itself. And then we will still have very much uncertainty when the House comes out of the Speaker's race. But hopefully the Senate is using this time well to at least move the ball forward a little bit on the appropriations process. But I think it's really anyone's guess what will happen. I don't think the House Republican Conference itself knows who's going to be Speaker and what will happen after they do decide who the Speaker is. Right. And then I don't think the gang of eight or whatever you call them there, the uh, ultra-right gang, whatever, those people that got... Kevin McCarthy derailed, they're not going to sit by and elect someone just to do what they prevented from happening with Kevin McCarthy, just have it happen with someone else. Yeah, ostensibly. I mean, it was interesting. I think the motion to vacate itself was brought by Matt Gates, and there was at least some rumors about that being a personal gripe between Gates and McCarthy. And then you had other people that were willing to vote for that motion to vacate, even if they maybe weren't willing to put it on the floor. You know, there was issues electing McCarthy as speaker where he had there was a block of around 20 House Republicans that originally didn't vote for him for a long period of time. And so some of those people, you know, they did not vote for that motion to vacate. So, you know, on the substance of it, I think what did McCarthy do wrong putting a bill on the floor that got majority of Republican votes? I mean, it's untenable at some point if the Speaker of the House is doing what the majority of House Republicans want. And they can't operate. And, well, that's the chaos we're seeing. McCarthy did what a majority of Republicans wanted. He avoided a shutdown. But there's still this, again, this chaos. So I don't know. I mean, I think what could come out of this that could be more stable is a rules change that takes away that power of that motion to vacate being used by any one or a small number of individuals. So if there is a speaker elected and a rules change that takes some power away from them, which some of the moderate or majority Republicans are calling for, that could lead to a more stable environment. But the speaker may be further to the right and pushing more for a shutdown anyway. So it's really up in the air. And the other thing is, if there is a shutdown or a continuing resolution that flows after this one into the first of the year, until that's over, no federal pay raise can go through, correct? No, if a continuing resolution goes through, the pay raise can still go through as long as it doesn't block it. So really, if Congress is silent, 
the president has the authority under statutory law to issue that pay raise. So he's issued his alternative pay plan in August. And basically, if Congress does nothing, as long as the government is funded, that will go through. Now, the continuing resolution wouldn't have budgeted amounts to cover that increase in pay, but that's up to the agencies to figure out where they're getting that money. And one thing that will continue, whether a shutdown or a continuing resolution or whatever, is federal employee health care coverage. That doesn't go away. And with open season, though, it looks like all of the choices are unpleasant with respect to the pricing, (laughs) presuming you can get the coverage you want. Yeah. So open season, again, we're seeing premiums increase. That's not different for the FEHB program. That's similar across the private sector. CalPERS, which is the California health benefits for their state and local employees, saw a 10.7% increase, where FEHB had a 5.8% for overall premiums and for enrollees, 7.7%. And that's due to the structure of how the government contributions are paid. So typically, if the popular plans are rising above the amount of the average, then you're going to see enrollees paying more than the government in terms of the increase, not on the total amount. But one way or the other, everybody's paying more than they were last year. Yeah. The premiums are going up across the board generally. I don't know 100% certain that every single plan's premiums went up, but I think with a 5.8% average increase, they probably are. Right. And so then what's your advice to members, to federal employees as they go about this? I mean, we say this every year, but (laughs) most people tend to stick with what they've got, and that's not always wise. Yeah, we always encourage people to shop for the plans to see there's a lot of good plan options out there. Some of them may be more affordable. I think going into this open season, there will be a major change in how federal retirees that are Medicare eligible are receiving or can receive prescription drug coverage. For example, on the popular Blue Cross Blue Shield plan, which covers, you know, there's 8 million participants in FEHB, about 5 million are under Blue Cross Blue Shield. If you're Medicare eligible, if you have Part A and Part B, you're going to be automatically enrolled in their kind of add-on prescription drug plan, which should help provide savings to you in terms of the receipt of your prescription health benefits. And so there are some options where you can opt out of that. The only main reason you wouldn't want that is if you're subject to higher income premiums for Part D. Those even may be offset by the savings you get by being in that. But for retirees, I really should be looking at their prescription drug coverage, how the new options work for them. And anybody really who's Medicare eligible, there's continuing to be more plans that have better coordination between Medicare and FEHB in a way that can help you save money. Right, because that Part B and Part D choice can get complicated. There's penalties if you don't do things right and so on. So the more they're coordinated, the less likely you're going to have some problem financially that pops up that you just didn't foresee. Right. The first question people often ask is, should I even take Part B? There's questions around when you should do that, whether you're still working or retired. If you wait and you had the opportunity to enroll, you're paying late enrollment penalties. Then once you have Part B, if you do take that, then what plan do you take? Or if you don't have Part B, what plan do you take? You probably want more comprehensive coverage. So we try to help our members with all that through webinars, white papers, and the like. So anybody who's looking for an extra bit of advice in open season, please uh, go to the NARF's website, see what webinars we have. You know, We have those, particularly on these Medicare-related issues, I think can be a real help because they are complicated factors. And of course, other than general inflation, which is uneven across different sectors of the economy, nobody really knows why the premiums went up as much as they did. It's not because the workforce is suddenly sicker as a whole. 
Yeah, the reasoning OPM gave was that there were changes in costs and utilization, which seems like a very obvious answer that, you know, prices went up and maybe more services were used. You know, we saw coming out of the COVID pandemic, there might have been a delay in certain outpatient surgeries. I think we would have caught up by then. Utilization of specific brand name drugs, emergency root care, and outpatient care were some of the primary drivers that OPM cited. But again, that's not super specific in terms of what exactly is driving this, other than it seems like a combination of people using more care and it costing more. Yeah, always. It costs more because it costs more. John Hatton yeah. is Vice President for Policy and Programs at the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association. As always, thanks so much. No problem. Thank you for having me. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Everything's not horrible. When federal retirees open their first Social Security checks in 2024, they'll see a slightly bigger number. That's thanks to the annual cost of living adjustment, or COLA. The adjustment is meant to keep Social Security recipients on pace with inflation. Not all federal retirees get the full amount. Here to break down this year's numbers, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. And, all right, what is the COLA amount for this year, and how do they get there? Starting in 2024, Social Security recipients will get a 3.2% cost of living adjustment, or COLA. And the percentage is generally meant to keep federal retirees and other Social Security recipients on pace with rising inflation over the years. So, you know, this is an annual adjustment that occurs every January, and the announced rate is typically comes around mid-October. And that's based on the Bureau of Labor Statistics Consumer Price Index for Urban Wage Earners and Clerical Workers, or CPIW. So based on that price index, they found that inflation is around 3.2%. And just quickly in numbers here, if, for example, you get an $1,800 Social Security check, that's around average of what a lot of recipients get, a 3.2% increase would be about $58 more take-home per check. That's right. And the inflation came in steady last month anyway. It was about 3.7%. So if that holds for the year, then the number is not too far off. But it tends to pace a little bit behind inflation, right? Because there are assumptions about how people live and what they buy in retirement versus the general population living with inflation across the board. Right. Then that is a question that um, at least a couple lawmakers are asking, you know, is this the right price index, at least for the COLA to be based on? But as it exists right now, that CPIW price index, it is based on the third quarter. So July, August and September amounts. And then they kind of calculate from there what the COLA will be for the following year. All right. And that is a decent COLA, but it's a lot smaller than the one that came last year, correct? Much smaller. Last year's COLA was 8.7%. That is huge. It's the largest in over 40 years. We know that, of course, inflation rates last year were quite high, and that's why the 8.7% number was there. Also in 2022, the COLA was 5.9%. So we've had a couple of years of big COLAs. Now it seems to be shrinking back down a little bit. If you look maybe the past decade or so, it's been between 0 and 2% generally, but that 8.7% last year was a, a quite sizable one. Yeah, well, it's a smaller COLA, and I guess the good news is inflation is a little bit more under control. I mean, there have been years over the decades with no COLA when the economy is great and the inflation is non-existent. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, if you look back in, for example, 2016, there was a 0% COLA 
in 2017, 0.3%. So there were some really small numbers even just you know, not even a decade ago. And do these numbers roll forward to future earnings when people do retire and start collecting? Do those numbers go up proportionately also? Yeah. So each year that you are on Social Security, that you get that COLA added to whatever your Social Security check is on top of whatever adjustments there were years prior. The idea is over time, whether it's years, decades that you're on Social Security, you are keeping keeping pace with the inflation rates that your Social Security checks actually do mean something and holds, continue to hold value. All right. And then there is the idea of the diet cola. Some people don't get the full cola special cases. Review for us what those are. This is specific to federal retirees. There's two federal retirement systems. One is the civil service retirement system. This is the older retirement system for uh, federal employees, and then the newer system, which switched over in about the mid-80s, the Federal Employee Retirement System, or FERS. And when they made that switch, Congress decided that FERS retirees, because they have the Thrift Savings Plan and they have um, all these other benefits that SERS retirees don't get, they decided to adjust the COLA for what FERS retirees should get. So FERS retirees get slightly less. It depends on how big the COLA is each year. But in this instance, while SERS retirees and other Social Security recipients will get 3.2%, FERS retirees will get 2.2% in their cost of living adjustments starting in 2024. And this is not to be confused with the so-called evil twin backouts for certain classes of, that's a whole other story. Right. That is a separate case. But in this this specific instance, this just affects the COLA within uh, Social Security benefits. All right. And I can imagine, but the federal unions probably don't like the Diet Cola idea for FERS employees. And have they weighed in on this and some of the employee representative groups that are outside the unions? Absolutely, Tom. This is something, of course, that, as you suggested, federal unions and other groups are largely against the idea that FERS retirees receive a smaller COLA. They say, you know, this is an unfair policy that over time doesn't account for the cost of inflation as much as all other Social Security beneficiaries get. The National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association, or NARF, they have been one of the strongest advocates for getting that full COLA for FERS retirees. And SERS beneficiaries that only have their federal pension, it's a much larger pension, they don't get Social Security because they didn't pay toward it, they are cost of living adjusted under SERS, their annuity. Right. And FERS annuitants also get cost of living increases too, automatically under the FERS part of the pension. Correct. Both FERS and SERS retirees get that. Yeah, so that's strange what the reasoning would be that the Social Security portion would not get the full cost of living adjustment because it all adds up to 100% of what you're getting, and so it should all be subject to the full COLA is what the reasoning there is. There's a bill, though, that would change this. Is this a perennial and probably won't pass again this year either? I can't say for sure what will happen this year with the bill, but it is one that has been around since 2018. It's called the Equal COLA Act. Representative Jerry Connolly of Virginia has been one of the strongest advocates for this bill and reintroduced it now, I believe, five times over, as well as Senator Alex Padilla in the Senate. This would essentially give FERS retirees the full COLA 
for their Social Security benefits and just put them on pace with SERS retirees and other Social Security annuitants as well. This is something, of course, NARF, federal unions, and others have advocated for. Those who are FERS retirees would probably like to see that as well, but it's not something that has had any action in the last five years that it's been introduced. And over the years, there have been different gambits to change the way the COLA is calculated, because if you base it on non-generic drugs at the drugstore, for example, you might have one inflation figure for drugs. If you go by generics, it's another. And so there is attempts from time to time to tie the COLA adjustment to the reality of what people might be buying in their market basket. Anything happening like that this year? There is a bill called the Fair Cola for Seniors Act. It's just a bill. It's not actually how the adjustment works. If the bill was enacted, it would require Social Security Administration to calculate the COLA based on the Consumer Price Index for the Elderly, or CPIE, instead of the CPIW, which is what it is currently calculated by. The idea here is that the CPIE has different weights added to certain spending habits. So, for example, it emphasizes healthcare spending. This is something that elderly people do have a larger share of costs there. So it's it's focused generally on individuals who are 62 years old and up, and that's also the minimum age requirement for those who receive the COLA. You know, advocates of that legislation have said this simply makes sense. It's, you know, these are the people who are getting Social Security benefits. It should be calculated based on their spending patterns and their spending habits. Again, this is one that has been introduced for a couple of years but has not had any action on it. Right. So the early bird specials drive your restaurant costs down when you get to be elderly, but the health care costs make it go through the roof. They should probably get 20% COLAs based on health care costs, but that's not going to happen either. To reiterate, the COLA next year will be? 3.2% for most Social Security recipients. FERS retirees will receive 2.2% COLA. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman, thanks so much. Thank you. You are on top of all these things, I must say. Let's uh, make sure you find her story at federalnewsnetwork.com, where all of the coverage of pay and benefits is there for you. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Tammen.